0: There's something in your heart between you and the Lord. Have you drifted apart, not as close anymore? There's nothing you can do that He will not forgive. Bring it to the cross and let it die so you can live. And dead it to the Cross, get it under the blood, drown your pain and every stain in the mercy blood. Lail it to the cross, find hope and forgiveness. Kneel at the tree and walk away free. Lail it to the cross. you battered and bound Do you struggle for strength Do you long to lay it down Don't take another step Just kneel where you stand Bring it to the cross And take the hammer in your hand And get it to the cross Get it under the blood and walk away free nail it to the cross just nail it to the cross get it under the blood drown your pain and every stain in the mercy blood nail it to the cross find hope and forgiveness kneel at the tree and walk away free nail it to the cross just nail it to the cross find hope and forgiveness He let the tree walk away free nail it to the cross
3: Friends, as you can tell, I'm in a little bit of a different format again on this Sunday afternoon. Miss D is doing much better, and she wants to send regards to each of you, thanking you for your prayers for her family and herself during this recent bout with COVID. And we've had a whole lot of people with breakthrough cases, but she is doing better. And we hope to be back into our normal format of recording in the next couple of weeks. But today I'm in my office again, and I'm here to just share with you the message for this Sunday afternoon, and kind of hope that you will learn something and enjoy our time together. So take just a moment with me, please, as we pray. Gracious and loving God, it is with grateful hearts that we come into your presence. We thank you for your mercy that was new this morning, and for the mercies that will be new tomorrow. And help us, Lord, to trust you in this hour throughout this day and throughout all the days of our lives. And Lord, I ask you to bless all the needs of those who are represented here today in our virtual congregation and those who have typed in requests or those who may be typing in requests even as the service is carried out today. Bless each one. Uh, We ask you to bless Mr. Earl Galloway in the loss of his nephew, this past week, we ask you to continue to pray for the family of Harvey Bellamy and also for the family of Ann, whose service was conducted on Friday at Emmanuel Cemetery. And so, Lord, we just thank you for your blessings in our lives. We ask you to continue to comfort those who have lost loved ones, including the Sally family and including the Tucker family today. Lord, be gracious to us now as we lift each of these needs to you and help us now to look into your scriptures and to learn something that will help us to better serve you and witness for you in this world. In the name of Christ we pray, say with me, Amen, Amen. Well, if you're following the lectionary text, the scripture for today is taken from John chapter 2 about the very first miracle that Jesus performed at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And if you remember, uh, last Sunday we talked uh, about a different subject because we actually did the Epiphany message two weeks ago. And so we're trying to get back a little bit into the uh, lectionary readings, which will help us uh, be consistent in the scriptural text up through Lent and then through the Easter season, leading us into Pentecost. And so we hope that you will learn something from this today. Understand that when this passage takes place that I'm reading about today, Jesus has already been baptized in the Jordan, and he's already begun his ministry. So that is a part of what we did leave out on last Sunday, as many churches remembered the baptism of our Lord Sunday. So I read from the New International Version, John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial cleansing each holding from twenty to thirty gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and with his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. This ends the scripture reading from the Gospel of John chapter 2. So the focus of our Gospel readings and the four Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, has been centered around the birth of our Lord uh, for the last number of weeks, also Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany, which commemorates the wise men who came from the East bearing gifts to Jesus as they followed the star. So on the liturgical church calendar, Baptism of our Lord was served or celebrated last week, and many Christians did observe this past week by renewing or remembering their own baptismal vows. But and then there's a brief gospel account of Jesus after these early accounts of his um, visit by the Magi from the East, um, when Jesus was 12 years old, and you probably know that story. He went up with his family from Nazareth to Jerusalem as they did every feast day and somehow on the journey back home to Nazareth which was about roughly between 70 and 90 miles whichever uh, route you decided to take and they realized that Jesus the young boy at age of 12 was not with the company or with his parents or with the neighbors and so they returned and they went back and after searching diligently for the child Jesus at the age of 12, they found him in the temple, teaching the lawyers and the scribes. And as a teaching note to you, I sometimes tell church folk, when they're feeling really separated from God, or down and out, or feel like that they just can't get it all together, that maybe a good place to begin our search for the Lord is in the temple. Now, do you know there are two temples mentioned for us as people of faith? First of all, we think about the earthly, physical temple of brick, mortar, stone, wood, silver, this great, majestic building in which the people came to offer sacrifices and to worship and to glorify the Lord. But secondly, the temple that is brought to us in the New Testament in the mystical form, and the spiritual form, is our body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it's like Jesus said to someone in another gospel reading on another occasion, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And it could be that Jesus was saying, you know, the temple of Jerusalem is really just a short distance away, but even beyond that, the real temple is your body, And you're not very far from the kingdom of God. God is with you. You just have to recognize it. You just have to identify it and own it that you are a child of the Lord. So I might say, try looking into the temple. Look into the temple of your soul and search your heart. And maybe you will be able to find what you are looking for. We are a people that are Uh, always seeking, just like those wise men or magi who came from the Orient. They were seeking the new king so that they might worship him and offer gifts to him of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. People are always seeking, just like Mary and Joseph, and the people were seeking for their son at the age of 12 as he was uh, separated from them. And I hope that you and I are people who never cease seeking. Never be afraid to ask questions. You know, somebody told me one time every time I think I learn the answers, somebody goes and changes the questions. And maybe that's how you're feeling today. Maybe you're just not sure how it's all going to turn out. Can I give you a little inside information today? I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I do know that if God is with us, Emmanuel, the story of Christmas, then everything is going to be okay. We don't have to be afraid of tomorrow, because God is already there. From everlasting to everlasting, God is. And so don't ever forget that. And so, always seek the Lord. The Bible says, call upon Him while He is near. Seek Him while He may be found. And so in our world today, We're constantly seeking, and on the idea of seeking, let me talk about the characteristic of the church or the ecclesia, the called out ones, the ones that we know of as the body of Christ in the world. That's every man, woman, boy, and girl of every race, creed, ethnicity, and lifestyle who knows and loves Jesus Christ and who claims him as Lord. There is no perfect congregation There is no perfect organization. You know, the church is made up of people. And what do you know about people? People are uh, easy to let you down. They're easy to be offended. They're easy to become discouraged. They're easy to be led astray. And that's who we are as people of faith as we try to follow the great shepherd of our life and continue seeking to walk into the plain paths that he has set before us. But please know that if you're looking for a perfect church, and I use that church in the sense of a congregation or a place where you could regularly attend and find worship opportunities, that there is no such thing as a perfect church. And if you think you've ever found it, may I advise you please do uh, do not join it, because once you do... It will no longer be perfect, because you are imperfect. I am imperfect. And as long as we can always understand that there is room for that element of humanity and imperfection, that we'll get along a whole lot better in trying to love one another and understand one another in the kingdom of God. But let's just continue to serve and love Jesus. And remember, it's all summed up in that one word, love. So today, the focus in our lectionary reading from John chapter 2 focuses on the very public ministry of Jesus when he goes to a little village not too far from Nazareth to a very ordinary and everyday kind of celebration, and that is a marriage. Is there anything in life that is more celebrated and that is more Um, enjoyed by family and friends and community when people come together for such a time of this, so is an everyday ordinary event that any of us can relate to. And the Bible simply says that there was a marriage celebration and many of Jesus' relatives were present, including his mother. Now we do not know who was being married and I know there are lots of questions, there are lots of suppositions and theories but the reality is nobody knows. It's never revealed to us who the bride and groom might be or what their relationship to the Lord or to his family might be. But keep in mind marriages in the days of the Bible were much different than what you and I think of today. And I hear people say I would love to get back to the biblical definition of marriage but let me just share with you just a little bit that in the days of our Lord and in the days uh, before that, marriage was not made for love, per se, but for the mutual benefit of both families involved. Jewish marriages were typically arranged by the fathers of the bride and groom, and it was done so as a business transaction. And the relationship began as a betrothal, or another word for engagement. And the main parties, who of course are the bride and the groom, were usually not even consulted before this business transaction was made and before the deal was finalized. Sometimes, oftentimes, the young couple, or whatever age they might be, would not even know each other. At times, The young couple could be set apart even as very young children. And in that case, the engagement period or the betrothal stood firm until they were old enough to marry. Now I told you, and you've probably heard this over and over in the story of Jesus at his birth in Bethlehem, that when Mary and Joseph had traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem, uh, she was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 years old. Things were different in those days and in those times. So, uh, in some practices of the culture of that day, the bride's uh, father would pay the groom's family a dowry. That would be in some of the customs of the different nations surrounding Israel. But from whatever I can read about the Hebrew nation or the Jewish nation and their culture, it would be more Um, truthful to say that the groom's father paid a price to her family to negotiate this engagement and to effectively purchase the bride. And the groom also gave a gift and that became a part of the property that she would bring into the marriage. How many of you know what I mean when I say hope chest? I remember, you know, sometimes, I don't know how much that is done today in our culture, but I remember years ago, young ladies, young girls would often start building together what they would call their hope chest. It would be a little box, sometimes a musical box, but something in which they would begin to place their treasures, which would help define who they would become years down the road and at a different time in their lives. The engagement in those days was as binding as marriage itself was. And the fathers, along with witnesses, usually signed a marriage contract called a kaduba. I'm not sure that I enunciated that word properly. But therefore, if either or both parties wished to end the engagement, a divorce would have to be required. And so you remember from our recent Christmas readings about in the story of Matthew how that Joseph uh, when he heard and saw that his wife was with child and they were in this extended engagement period knowing that he had not been with her pondered in his heart and considered putting her away privately in other words he considered divorcing her in a very private way so as not to bring shame upon either side of the family or upon her life. But then again, it tells us that Mary pondered all these things in her heart. And both of them knew that they were doing the work of God and the will of God, and they remained in the position of engagement or betrothal. But after the betrothal or uh, engagement period, the groom would usually return to the father's house and begin working on a bridal chamber <clears throat> excuse me the new couple would basically add on to the house and sometimes there could be several generations living in the same family homestead and you know we if we understood the bible in the 21st century in western culture western christianity of america uh, if we understood what the people of the Bible understood, we would look at things somewhat differently. And when you read John, for example, chapter 14, which I share at almost every funeral service, it begins by saying, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And that is translated to mean rooms. And what Jesus is basically doing here is teaching the disciples and us who follow him these 2,000 plus years later that he is the bridegroom, the church is the bride, and we follow Jesus Christ into that beautiful place that he has gone to prepare for us. And so the early Christians, the disciples, would have understood the concept of building onto a house and having lots of room because they would move into the family home and just build on. If there were a lot of children, and especially men in the family, uh, they would build on the rooms for the young man to bring his bride to bring the family along. And it became extended family, and therefore the older people would be grandparents to the children. The grandchildren would help take care of the elders in their old age. And it was a family event of community whereby everyone cares for one another. And so the people understood when Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. And then he said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself so you can be with me. You see, Jesus was telling the disciples in that case that there's going to be a spiritual wedding, a spiritual marriage, in which all of us, as the redeemed people of the Lord, in some mystical way, I don't know how to explain it, I just know that somewhere, God has a wonderful event awaiting for all of those who love and serve Him. The Bible says, the eye has not seen, neither has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of men. Those things which God has prepared For all those who serve him and love him. But the disciples could not understand in John chapter 14 that Jesus meant I'm going to be going away to a spiritual home. I'm going back to the heaven from whence I came. Remember in the first readings of the Gospel of John in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt with us. But they could not comprehend that. And they believed that Jesus was going somewhere to just build a great, big, beautiful house for them all to live in. And they were fine with that. Because if you remember, uh, there was a time in their life when Jesus took some of the disciples up on the top of the mountain. And we'll be talking about this sometime in the coming weeks or months. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter, James, and John They said, it's good for us to be here. Let's just stay up here. Let's just build some little rooms up here, some little booths, some tents, and let's live up here forever. It's so good. So they understood that concept. But in that particular case, they couldn't understand that Jesus was talking about going to an invisible place, to have an invisible place that they could not see, a place that we could call home. And you know, a lot of people, I hear a lot of people who love the Lord, especially as they get on up in years and many of their loved ones pass away and they become very much alone and no extended family to speak of, uh, they get a little bit of homesick for heaven. And maybe you've been that way. Maybe someone is listening to this message today and you can think about that old song that said, I've got a longing I'm homesick to go, and as one songwriter said, I'm not afraid to go because I've got family on both sides of the river, and what a wonderful thought that is. So after the betrothal, the groom would go back to the house, he would build onto the property, and when he had it all ready, then he would return to fetch the bride and You know, this could take up to a year, sometimes even a little longer. And she didn't know the exact time that he was coming after her, but she was engaged to him and she did know that he had promised to come back for her. And so she lived her life in preparation, in anticipation of the bridegroom coming to take her home. And what a beautiful analogy of Jesus Christ and his children, the bridegroom and the Bride of Christ, who is going to have a place prepared. I told someone, even this morning, that maybe we in the church have not done a real good job over the years of helping Christian people to embrace the will of God and to not fear death. And we've heard so much about death and dying and sickness in the last couple of years, especially with the pandemic that uh, we're weary-worn, we're battle-worn with all of that. But we need to be like the Scripture says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? You know, we look at it as a time of overcoming all the things that this world throws in our way, all the stumbling blocks that cause us so much pain and insult in life. And so she would do everything she could during that year or whatever time uh, remained, to be ready and to continue building that hope chest and being prepared to be a bride and into a new family situation. And so once he decided to go, uh, sometimes it would be at the midnight hour. Now that's why the scripture says even in an hour that you think not, the bridegroom comes, the Son of Man will come. But the groom's arrival to pick her up would be announced with the sound of a trumpet and with a shout of all the people. And she would come running out of the house and her family would come running out and they would meet the bridegroom, they would celebrate, they would have that great wedding which could last up to a week. The dancing began, the music began, the cooking began, and the the celebration began. And there's so many illustrations that describe the beauty of that relationship. So now I've set the stage with information about the engagement process and the entry of the groom for the celebration. Now we continue with John's record of the wedding where Jesus performed the very first miracle. And he did this as an evidence that he is the anointed Son of God. Did you know that's what the word Christ means? When we use the term or title Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus means Savior. Uh, It's taken from that Old Testament title of Joshua, which means Deliverer. Jesus means Deliverer or Savior. And Christ means Anointed, the Anointed One of God. So when we think of Jesus Christ, we think of the Anointed One of God. And as Jesus said, when you have seen me, you have seen my Father. And so uh, they were there, the celebration had begun, they were playing music, and they were all ready to go, and all of a sudden here in John chapter 2, the wedding becomes disrupted, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, picks him out of the crowd, and she says, son, you got to do something. You got to help us out. You see, Mary always knew from that date that she pondered these things in her heart, that that child within her would be the anointed of God, and so she trusted him. She had favor with her son, and there's some parents who may be um, listening to this today, and there's some children and young people. And let me say it doesn't matter if you are a 40-year-old child or a 70-year-old child. Honor your father and mother as long as they're with you. And parents, honor your children and don't cause wrath to come into the situation. Do not be a troublemaker. Be a peacemaker. Strive, seek, work at becoming a peacemaker with the Lord and with those around you. And so Mary trusted her son Jesus. She said, son, we've run out of wine. And he looked at her and he said, woman... What does that have to do with me? Now, you might think, well, I I know for me, and my mom's been gone almost 21 years, and I know that if I had answered my mom by saying, Woman, I think probably there would have been a little bit of a, a response. You know, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, and some of you could understand what that reaction could have been. But in the days of Jesus, that was not a term of uh, rudeness or disrespect, it was simply a term of uh, endearment to his mother, woman. what does that have to do with me? And so um, Jesus at this time decided or knew as the Father and the spirit guided him, that it was time to show forth his glory. To manifest his presence. He had already been baptized. You remember that? And the presence of the Lord came and said, This is my beloved Son, and to whom I am well pleased. Listen to what he has to say. So he had already done that. And now he was to begin his public ministry. He had already been in that 40 days in the wilderness when he turned the the stone, or when he could have turned the stone into bread, and he didn't. He did not do it. He said man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of the Lord. But at this time, not at the devil's urging or of the world's engagement, but because of the Spirit's guidance, he did a miracle of turning the water into wine. And so look what happened. Jesus had the servants to bring the six jars filled with water, and I've already read to you how many gallons of water that was, a lot of water. And all of a sudden, the water miraculously became the best wine that the man in charge had ever tasted. And for the people of that day, in the Mediterranean area and in the Middle East, they knew how to make good wine. It was a part of their culture. I've been to Cana of Galilee. Some of you watching this or listening to this have traveled with me to Israel. And we've gone to the little town of Cana and we've actually tasted the grapes and tasted the wine of Cana and we've actually done uh, renewal celebrations of marriage with the certificates of a renewal of wedding vows in Cana of Galilee. It's just something that the people who travel to Israel like to do as a reminder of walking in the footsteps of Jesus. But Jesus revealed his glory in verse 11 here, and thus his disciples put their faith in him. You see, up until now they were following him simply because he said, come follow me. You know, whether they were mending fishing nets or taking up taxes or whatever they're doing. He just said, come on, go with me. And they did because something about his voice commanded them and they couldn't resist. And I want to tell you today that Jesus is calling your name. Jesus loves you and he desires the good things for you. And he wants you to follow after him and walk in the fullness of joy. You see, one of the things that brought... uh, great joy to the people in those days was the good wine. The Bible talks about how that it's, it brought joy and laughter and, and helped them. And Even the scripture says, drink some wine for thine infirmities, for your stomach's sake, for health and for well-being. Not to be a drunkard, not to be a sot, but to be someone who simply enjoys the goodness of God and the blessings of the Lord. And so, Uh, and I said that to say this because I know some of you think this is a real um, sensitive subject but I want you to hear me through and listen to what I have to say today because if the best thing you're getting out of this miracle of Jesus in Cana of Galilee is an argument about whether it was real wine or just good grape juice then you've missed the entire point of the whole story Throughout the passage of the scriptures and throughout this particular passage of John chapter 2, this word wine is translated from the Greek word which is oinos. And I'm, again, I'm not a Greek scholar. I've had just a semester of that in college. But it was a common word from the Greek translation used for just normal everyday wine. Wine that is fermented. Remember in those days Fresh water was so difficult to come by and they would carry water for miles and they would have to gather water in cisterns. Have you ever cleaned out a cistern? I'll never forget years ago in another place in another state, uh, some of my friends were cleaning out the cistern off their back porch and they took this great big cement lid off and all that and this is where they got all of their drinking water. This is where they got their water for everything they did cooking, washing, drinking, whatever. And as we got down in there to clean up that cistern, guess what? There was dead birds and even a dead rat and skeletons down in the bottom of that cistern and they were drinking all that. You can imagine in a country where it's a desert area and for months at a time there's little to no rainfall. Water was very much of a commodity. And that's why Jesus would say, if you even give so much of a drink of cold water in my name, you have received your reward. But you see, they used everything that God gave them as a blessing and not a curse. And so there are verses like in Psalm 104 that I referred to a moment ago, that God gives wine that makes glad the heart of men. And in Amos 9 and 14, The prophet said the drinking wine from your own vineyard is a sign of God's blessing upon your life. Now, while some of you are intently listening to this, let me say, other scriptures teach that abuse of alcohol and drunkenness and addiction to any kind of substance is sinful, and we have to be careful how we treat our temple. Remember, I began this by talking about looking into the temple, and God will not dwell in an unclean temple. God wants to live in a heart that is sanctified and is doing the best we can. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, it simply means we're walking in the light that Jesus Christ gives us. And so I might add that, in much the same way that gluttony or any other abuse of God's gifts can be sinful and detrimental to our human temple, it can be detrimental to the community around us. So God is not in any way promoting drunkenness in excess. The Bible clearly says, do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but rather be filled with the Spirit. So He's not promoting gluttony of wine any more than He's promoting gluttony by multiplying the bread and the fishes to the thousands on the hillside. For the record, let me just say to you, lest you take everything I've said and take it out of context, I'm not a drinker of alcohol, and I don't advocate such, but neither do I smoke cigarettes, neither do I participate in other uh, uh, substance abuse. But please understand, I have my faults and my failures and my sins just as much as you do, and when we start pointing out the sins of other people and and forgetting our own, then we've truly missed the point of grace. I've shared with you so many times that when somebody else's sin bothers me more than my own sin bothers me, then I've missed the whole point and I've passed completely by what grace is all about. So please understand that the point of today's sermon is to keep the main thing the main thing and to cre- and to not create confusion Because God is not the author of confusion. The point of this whole story and the point of all the gospel is point people to the kingdom of God as presented by Jesus Christ instead of driving other people away from Jesus. So today, think about this miracle. What a wonderful miracle that Jesus turned the water into wine. And the people were blessed. And they were honored by God and they celebrated This beautiful gift of marriage. You see, it was all done in a way of celebration and community in the blessings that God had given. Okay, now, as I begin to wind this up here this afternoon, or whatever time you may be listening to this particular text, I have one question to ask you. So this is your homework that you can think about and talk about and study What is the one most important thing that you brought away from the message today? Think about it. What came to me is the words of the mother of Jesus who said, Whatever he tells you to do, you do it. If you'll simply do what Jesus said to do, you'll never go wrong. I promise you that, my friend. It doesn't matter what people think about you, what people say about you, and how people may misunderstand your actions and how the the truth may be misrepresented. If God is with you and if God is for you, who can be against you? So do what Jesus said to do. And I'm going to summarize it to you. Do you know what Jesus said to do? And you can't get around it, you can't go over it, you can't go under it. It's simply this. Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's all about love. Are you living in love? Are you walking in faith? Are you trusting the Lord? Are you looking to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith? God loves you today, dear friends. We're all human beings, imperfect, trying to find our way home. And as Dr. Smitty often sometimes sing that little song, we're walking, we're walking, we're walking each other home. Dear friends, don't forget to keep the main thing, the main thing. God bless you. Have a wonderful afternoon. Have a wonderful day. Be blessed in the name of the Lord. Goodbye. We'll see you again, okay? And don't forget, when you're out and about, Keep it on, okay? Bye.